This is another iRaw podcast. I mean, when you attend to sound, you realise just the extent to which animals are world-making. Um, mm. Not just their own worlds, but our own worlds, creating particular kinds of atmospheres, creating particular kinds of, of sensory experiences. And yeah, you're right. So when you attend to that, you, you, you realise that um, something like a kitty wake might be small in stature, but, um, but it can create and, and, and completely kind of transform a place through, through, their, through their calls. Welcome back to The Animal Turn, everyone. This is Season 4, Episode 2. As you know, in Season 4, we're focusing in on animals and sound. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking all about sonic methods. So the first episode, we looked a bit at soundscapes, kind of setting the scene a bit for what are we even talking about when we talk about animals and sound. And now we're getting a bit more into the nitty gritty. So what kind of methods could you use to even, you know, access these types of sounds and to think about these sounds? My guest today uh, helps me to really think through this a whole bunch, and that's Jonathan Pryor. Dr. Jonathan Pryor is a lecturer in human geography at Cardiff University in Wales. His research and publications take an interdisciplinary approach spanning environmental philosophy, sound studies, and landscape research. His first book, Between Nature and Culture, The Aesthetics of Modified Environments, was co-authored with Emily Brady and Isis Brooke, which was published in 2018. He's incredibly generous throughout the episode, and you'll hear that we riff off one another uh, in, in what was a really generative conversation and thinking through how sonic methods could help us to better understand animals' lives and worlds. Uh, if you're interested in some of Jonathan's work, make sure to check out his sound recordings online. You can access them on the Internet Archive, as well as on his audio recording project website, which is 12 Gates to the City. I must say up front, unfortunately, I did run into a few sound issues. You're going to hear that my audio has a minor echo throughout. It's not too bad, but I just wanted to flag it here uh, so that you are aware. Uh, Other than that, everything goes smoothly. And we're joined once again at the end of the episode with Hannah Hunter, who gives us this episode's animal highlight. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to The Animal Turn. Thank you very much for having me. So today we're going to be speaking all about sonic methods. And uh, as a a scholar, of course, I've tended to, you know, sit within the writing world. And I haven't even even really thought of interviewing as a sonic method. You know, I haven't framed it or thought of it in that way. Uh, But today we're going to be speaking all about sonic methods, which is really exciting. Uh, but before we get into that concept uh, itself and how you think sonic methods might be useful for folks with an interest in animal studies, perhaps we can learn a little bit more about you first. So could you tell us a little bit about what you do and uh, maybe how you came to be interested in in sound studies? Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, yes, my name is Dr. Jonathan Pryan and currently I'm a lecturer in human geography at, uh, at Cardiff University in Wales. Um I guess, uh, very broadly speaking, my research, uh, in my research, I'm interested in uh, human environment relations, um, how humans relate to the natural world, and how uh, this impacts um, uh, particular forms of environmental practice. In particular, I'm interested in environmental conservation, ecological restoration, and rewilding. Um, 
out of those uh, well i guess across those those three things i'm really interested in the role of environmental value how people come to value whether it be landscapes or particular species and how those values might play a role in in conservation policy the making of conservation policy and the protection of the natural world to narrow that down a little bit more um out of the kind of suite of different values that people might um might hold or appreciate in terms of of the natural world um i'm very interested in the role of of aesthetics and ethics and how those two things relate to um uh, lay as well as professional forms of environmental conservation and so within environmental aesthetics um there is a long history of thinking about uh obvious concepts such as natural beauty uh the um natural sublime um the picturesque as you can probably imagine all of these sorts of concepts are very visual um in terms of their focus so a lot of kind of the history of environmental aesthetics has been about how we visually value and appreciate landscapes and animals there has been a more recent turn towards thinking about kind of the multi, the role of multi senses in in valuing uh the natural world and also animals um but i guess when i was doing my phd i was coming across this this concern that i was kind of reproducing this very um visual way of of studying and investigating um environmental aesthetics and so i started to become interested in in um the role of senses beyond vision and visuality um and i really latched onto some early writings that considered the the role of of sound in building up relationships with the natural world and i kind of followed that through i've got a background interest in in music um so i guess sound was something that kind of jumped out at me and it seemed quite quite novel at the time in you know the early days of my my phd research and i followed that through i um I got in contact with um uh the music department at the University of Edinburgh. I I did my PhD at the University of Edinburgh up in Scotland. Um and they very kindly lent me out a whole bunch of um audio recording gear which allowed me to not just write about sound uh but also try and in some way document sound that I thought um would achieve and I've got to be careful how I say this have a have a kind of a form of representation that I thought could go beyond what can be captured by the written word so when we talk about um particular sounds I think we have a um a fairly underdeveloped vocabulary when we talk about sound we we talk um um about things being quiet or loud um we might use visual metaphors when we talk about sound um but i wanted to think about how i could write sound without using writing if that makes sense and so this brought me to this idea of using audio recording and it kind of took off from there and now audio recording has kind of permeated much of my um uh academic research um and i've also developed outside of academia i've also uh, developed kind of a, a an audio recording practice as well so i've done various work for um um art galleries and museums across europe using audio recording and i do work on my own little projects um audio recording as well yeah your your website's actually really interesting uh i was going through several of your kind of soundscapes that you've created mm. and collected um you know there was one in bc where you can like you hear the flagpole and you hear the 
I think you're on a ferry and you can hear kind of the waves on the ferry. And this this links back to kind of the, the first episode of the season where we were speaking about soundscapes and just how important all of these sounds are. They, they kind of come together to create a, a distinct feeling of a place or sense of a place. Uh, but I like that you said here that your interests kind of hover around some of the ideas with regards to aesthetics and ethics, because mm. something that came up, I think, often in season three, was, which was focused on animals in the city, was kind of how animals, particularly in North American and Western cities, they started to stand in opposition to the city, sometimes because of the sounds they were making or the mm -hmm. ways in which they smelled, right? Uh, they, they, they were no longer... Uh, sanitary enough for the city. They 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 didn't smell the way a modern city should smell. They didn't sound the way a modern city should um, should sound. Which I think is just really really fascinating because you start to get a sense of there are particular sounds you expect in some places and ones that you don't. So I think that this is really an exciting um, potential place or area for animal studies scholars to actually explore a bit more. Um, and do, do you have any sort of interest in animal studies itself? I know you mentioned the uh, rewilding, which mm -hmm. is obviously a really huge uh, field at the moment. A lot of people speaking about real rewilding. I, my my work is actually on cows and I've been reading a lot about aurochs lately and how, you know, that the heck, the heck cows and how mm -hmm. those have been mm -hmm. used in all of these like rewilding campaigns. And it's really wild it's it's insane when you're kind of start getting into absolutely. that absolutely um, but yeah, yeah what are your interests in in animal studies mm. and have you kind of used any of these sound ideas when mm -hmm. thinking about animals yes i have so in in terms of speci the specifics of rewilding i've i've conducted some research on the reintroduction of um beavers into the uk in particular looking at the reintroduction of um eurasian beavers into scotland now this this work um, I conducted with a um, with a colleague based at Plymouth University by the name of Kim Ward, um, and we were looking at the social and political kind of ramifications of this the reintroduction of this very charismatic species um, that caused a lot of delight for some people and also a lot of um, co consternation from certain um, landowners. Um, so the reintroduction of beavers. Has has been relatively controversial and we're trying to understand kind of the political dynamics of the reintroduction of this species in terms of kind of the sensory qualities um, I guess more broadly thinking of processes of things like ecological restoration and rewilding my interest in the senses here um, is what happens when we reintroduce um, species that have perhaps been absent from a landscape for centuries so the beaver has been um, absent from the UK landscape out in the wild for for about 400 years or so. And so thinking about kind of the sensory ramifications of these sorts of projects for me is really interesting because there might be an assumption that um, people enjoy these species, they go out and um, they're, they're nocturnal animals, so you tend not to see them during the day, but you can see kind of traces of these animals. But I wanted to think about what the sensory ramifications are of these species reintroductions in terms of the animals themselves, so the presence of the animals in terms of the sounds that they produce, and also the ramifications for the wider landscape. So beavers are notorious for creating um very watery landscapes you know they they 
they dam flood channels they um cause low kind of level um flooding in areas and this creates a very kind of very different kind of sensory experience of of that landscape you mentioned smell i think smell is also something which is which is really kind of fascinates fascinates me about rewilding um if you think about beavers they create these um, potentially quite stagnant pools of water, which can give off if if they've flooded an area of of, of wooded debris, um, that can create quite um, sulfuric sort of smells. Um, so I'm interested, I guess, not just in sort of the pos- positive ramifications of um, of rewilding and ecological restoration, but also maybe some of the challenging aesthetic. Um, uh, qualities that emerge out of ecological restoration and rewilding, and so you know, as much as people might enjoy the presence of of beavers, I think kind of the if if I can put this right, the beavery kind of presence mm. of the animal, I think, can also be discombobulating from a sensory perspective for people, and that's not to mention things like wolves, you know, the sound of wolves or the sound of bears or or those apex predators, which are you know even more controversial, particularly in, in mainland. Europe, um, where there's been quite a bit of of outfall with the um, reemergence of these um, apex predators, and so that's I think that's I think that role of the senses plays a really interesting kind of role in how people come to know, understand, and appreciate a landscape. Yeah, and and I think like you you said there as well, how different animals appreciate their landscapes and their environments. So if if beavers have been outside of this landscape for four hundred odd years, one would assume that the animals who are still there have uh, adapted in a way that might not be attuned to beavers necessarily. Um, so what does it mean to all of a sudden be in your space and your environment and to hear a beaver um, or to smell a beaver? Uh, how does this you know, start to impact the sensory experiences of other animals that are in those spaces? And like you said, this is not to, to say it's a net positive or net negative, but I think and, and I'm, I'm by no means any sort of expert in this area, but I think it starts to raise really interesting questions about how we think about landscapes or ecologies as being static environments. You know, oh, absolutely. This this being was here once upon a time, so they should, in quotes, naturally fit within here again. Absolutely, um, yeah. And yeah, I think that's a really interesting realm to kind of enter to think about. You know, how does Definitely. sound play a role Definitely. in all of this? And if we think about the ways in which um, sound has tended to play a role in ways in which people have appreciated natural environments, it tends to be associated with the absence of sound rather than the presence of sound. So we talk about how rural areas are tranquil or peaceful mm. rather than potentially overwhelming in terms of the sounds that are kind of, um, you know, the soundscape which is created by the return of these sorts of species. So I I think it also kind of pierces some of the assumptions of of the ways in which we talk and think about natural appreciation from a from a sonic perspective. I've always found the idea of silence kind of interesting or tranquility kind of interesting because I mean something that came up with with Brian in the previous episode is he said you know there is no such thing as silence you're always hearing something but also even in kind of reading some sound literature, you kind of get the sense that the natural world is is quoted as being silent somehow, whereas the human world is quoted as being noisy and loud and making sounds. And this to me just seems bizarre somehow. Somehow bird song seems to make an appearance. People think, okay, birds, you know, birds are sweet, but the sound of trees creaking or the sounds of uh, 
you know, a deer walking through the forest or whatever it is, mm-hmm. those those kind of get usurped into the soundscape mm. of nature without it any uh, I don't know how to express what I'm trying to say here, but without it being yeah. distinct in any way, yeah, without the sound being acknowledged. Absolutely. absolutely. There's very different, very little in the way of differentiation between, say, what, what bird sound constitutes. Um, mm. So one recording which I've, I've made, um, which, I, which you might want to introduce, is, um, is a sound, is a uh, recording of um, kitty wakes um, in Dunbar, Scotland. Um, now this, um, I, w- I think you'd be hard-pressed to call the sound of kitty wakes in any way peaceful or tranquil let me let me give it a play here Grinning. There's something just delightful <laughs> about it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, the, so, 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 kitty wakes. I think is quite a good example of maybe some of the things that we're talking about here. Kitty wakes are a, unfortunately, a, a, a rapidly declining species um, due to pressures on their feeding grounds, as as a lot of um, seabirds are facing um, issues in terms of of declines. Um, now, kitty wakes, I guess, would are a challenging species for people to kind of build a um a positive valuation from an aesthetic perspective as you can hear they are very loud it's 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 kind of a comedic sound in in a way i think quite a cheery sound but i wouldn't say it's a particularly pleasant sound um they're also um they also produced quite a lot of um waste wherever they nest um so you know they are seen as urban pests because they 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 because of their um i guess pressures on their coastal feeding grounds at times they they do move further inland um as with a lot of gull species um they're not particularly highly valued um yet at the same time um they really are um as i say saying quite rapid and quite um quite scary declines in their populations and so i guess a question for me would be it's all very well for the um for the literature to talk about the tranquility of bird species okay you know we can talk about say the the wonder of the dawn chorus or the beauty of the 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 sound of a blackbird or, or something like that but um when we actually differentiate um different kinds of animal species um i think we need to think a bit more carefully about simply delineating you know the natural world as something that is peaceful and tranquil and that people can easily build positive value with What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. I really appreciate the the use of your concept value there because I think you're right. You kind of come to value 
and and by you I maybe mean specific people um you know specific people might value the kitty wakes in different ways uh you know just like different people will value pigeons in different ways or beavers in different ways you know you start having a conversation about beavers in Canada you're going to have a very different conversation about how beavers are valued um because you start to bring in different human identity etc um human economies into how these valuations work so i think that you're you're really on the money here when you say you know how are these species valued and perhaps how are their sounds valued uh, and what is what is i guess shaping those valuations uh, whether it's economies or, or cultures or you know national pride uh, but i think a little bit of what i was trying to speak about just now was also the idea of silence and mm-hmm. um, you know which which animals are 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 not even being heard you know because they're there they're being sounded and they're making noises but when either we don't have the capacity to hear them or two um we're just not interested they're they're mm-hmm. not there there is no value um, mm. i don't know if you've got any thoughts on that um yes i i in terms of the i guess the the lessening of value i guess i guess scale quite obviously plays a role here um something which i've been interested in using in my work um perhaps in my work outside of academia more than inside academia is using different kinds of microphones to access worlds that or sound worlds that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to hear with your with your naked ears so i have a a slight obsession with recording the sound of ants um i think that, i think there's a recording of of the sound of ants which i sent you yeah i can um, uh, do you want me to play it for you now sure go for it <laughs> i quite enjoy this <laughs> So I must say, I found the sound quite surprising. Mm. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, recording? absolutely. So, um, so this was recording um, down on my allotment. I think you would call them community gardens in in North America. Um, essentially, um, this is a a a, a ants nest um so digging in my in my allotment um there's quite a few ant nests and um when you hit an ants nest you certainly know it because um hundreds of thousands of potentially um certainly thousands of uh, worker ants will start pouring out of of the nest to investigate what's going on um and the sound that you can hear is me using what is called a contact microphone um contact microphones essentially um they don't pick up um sound through the air as an ordinary microphone would so the microphones that we're using now um have a diaphragm which moves um with with um you know as the compression of air moves from our mouths through the microphone instead what happens with a contact microphone is that it picks up um vibrations um in in um has to be placed next to solid materials so what i've done here is i've i've put in the um contact microphone in the middle of the nest or in the middle of these um work ants and it's them crowding around this contact microphone and what you can hear is them using um their antenna rubbing it against um their body and their legs and creating this kind of squeaky sound which is their method of communication so what i find fascinating about this kind of stuff i guess is that um 
as you rightly say, you know, this is accessing a world that perhaps we're not even aware of underneath our feet, you know, every day. And, you know, this, I'm talking about in heavily urbanized downtown Cardiff. I'm not talking about um, out in the countryside somewhere. And what I think I find fascinating about this is that it constantly reminds me, I guess, about the alterity of the non-human world, okay, that we're living amongst beings that produce all kinds of incredible sounds. Um, again, not just out in in um, in wilderness or countryside environments, but living here alongside us in the city. All we need is the tools, is the particular kinds of methods to be able to get access to these worlds. I think ants are just... Um... They're incredible. They're incredible architects. They're incredible workers. They they do amazing things. And to 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 hear that world, kind of how it opens up your imagination of what's going on, the busyness of what's happening uh, is really is really exciting. And you're kind of uh, bringing us nicely here to the focus of today's episode, which is on sonic methods. So you spoke a little bit here about uh, your microphone and mm-hmm. kind of inserting the microphone amongst the ants. And of course, there are, there are questions. Uh, you know, to be asked here about the ethics of bringing a microphone Absolutely. into uh, the environment of another animal. So just like the beaver might disrupt Definitely. Um, the sonic environment. What what does, uh, yeah, maybe we can talk a bit about that before we sure. about sonic methods broadly, but what does it mean mm. now to, to, you know, be, be recording these animals' uh, spaces, their worlds? Mm. Yes, I think you're right that it does raise uh, ethical questions. I guess in the in the context of the ants, I imagine the the spade going into the ground was more of a concern for the ants' nest than um, the insertion of a, of a microphone. But um, but yes, it is it is it is challenging and it can be troubling. Um, I guess in my own work, I try to be as non-invasive as possible in terms of, of recording at particularly animal sounds. Um, if I enter environments, I try to maintain as much distance as possible. And there are various useful tools um, to enable you to maintain that distance. So um, a good example in the same way that a, um, a photographer would use a, a long lens zoom uh, to to capture uh, animals from a distance. Um, sound recordists will often, wildlife recordists will often use something called a parabolic reflector, which enables people to record from from long distances. Essentially, what it is is it's a big plastic um, half sh- uh, kind of uh, dome shaped um, object that you insert a microphone um, into one end of, and what this does is it's concentrating um, sound waves from a distance down and channeling channeling it into the microphone so essentially it enables you to kind of eavesdrop from a distance um so again i guess the question of eavesdropping is is something which um could also be ethically dubious um, but it enables me to particularly bird sound it enables me to record bird sound from a distance in a way that um doesn't disturb the birds that i'm trying to record Thank you so much for making uh, understanding this so accessible because, yeah, I think making the comparison there with with the photographer kind of really helped me to understand how the the mechanisms of these different technologies work. And so we've spoken now about a a contact microphone and I'm Mm -hmm. going to say it wrong, a parabolic Parabolic reflector. reflector. Um, So these are obviously two tools that are quite useful in terms Mm -hmm. of you hearing both soundscapes broadly so broader ecologies but also potentially specific uh, animals uh, or even species 
But when we speak about sonic methods, so these mm. are obviously uh, tools for for doing it. Uh, and I'm, I'm assuming here recording is is the method. Is is that the only method there is when you're thinking about recording? Um, mm. You know, an animal or recording a, a soundscape. What what kind of yeah, what do you mean when you say sonic methods? Sure. So sonic methods, I think, is a the way that I use that, deploy this term, I think of it as a broad suite of different kinds of methods that enable us to investigate uh, the interactions between, um, uh, say, an animal and the space that it, it inhabits, or it could be more generally about the, the sound of a landscape. Um, you're right to pick up on, uh, on, on sound recording as perhaps one of the focal methods, but there are other kinds of methods that I think fall under this umbrella category of, of sonic methods. So there are other things in terms of something which is called a listening walk. It's also referred to as a sound walk. Um, there are various kinds of um, uh, uh, sonic mapping um, methods, um, which essentially uh, are trans transposing sonic data into visual data so producing um, visual representations of sound um, these have recently been updated i guess in the digital world um, so there is now a vast um, array of online sound maps where recordists have uh, what they do is they have start with a base layer map a classic maybe a google map and then what you can do is you can upload uh, sound recordings in the location where those recordings have been made. Um, so I guess here we have an interplay between sound and space and also kind of visual and um, and the sonic domain as well. So, uh, so this is kind of a way for you to, I suppose, localize sounds to try and get a sense of where particular sounds originate from. So sounds are not just floating in space. They have kind of a, yeah. a geography to them. They have Absolutely. a locatedness, uh, mm -hmm. which, which is really cool. I, I saw, gosh, I'm going to get the name of it wrong now. I think her name was Thompson and it was to do with New York City. And she had mapped not only, she had mapped all the complaints in the city and she had mapped mm. both the like sound complaints in the city as well as, um, you know, smell complaints and, and I think she had had in there kind of some of these these sound recordings because it was at a time when recording and video recording had just kind of started. And it was kind of neat to hear, you know, older cars and older trains and um, and horses, you know, mm -hmm. all kind of happening in the city at the same time. Which Absolutely. Is, so I think there's a geographic component to these maps, but Definitely. also a, a historical one, right, where you start to realize that these sounds change over time. Absolutely, yeah. So I think that it does give um, a certain degree of geographic context for these recordings rather than them being, as you say, kind of floating away, decontextualized. Mm. There has been a numerous kind of um, critiques and, and, and understandable critiques of, of the use of these sorts of sound maps um, for all the reasons that um, geographers kind of habitually use, um, sorry, habitually um, critique um visual maps so mm -hmm. in terms of 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 the kinds of um logics that um they reproduce in terms of power relations in terms of who gets to create these sound maps and to um and and kind of what end and also i guess a more of, of a basic um issue with the fact that you know soundscapes as you've already mentioned are, are constantly changing constantly unfurling and kind of fixing them to a map in some way um, prevents them from 
prevents this idea of them in constant flux or constant mm. change if, if that makes sense no, nonetheless nonetheless mm. i still find them i still find them interesting and i still find them useful as a way of uh, presenting what can be quite a chaotic catalog of sound recordings and and like i say i think it does get give some form of um geographical context to what is being recorded yeah, I think, I mean, like you rightfully point out, I think as long as you're sensitive to some of these these concerns around how things are constructed or reconstructed, it's the same thing with the photograph. Uh, I think you mentioned in your paper um, on sonic geographies, you mentioned kind of even when someone is taking a, a photograph, they're framing the the image, right? They're, they're choosing what image to take, and that is to some extent a reconstruction. So same thing with with a map kind of being sensitive to to those reconstructions. Uh, I wanted to go back to sound walks and listening walks. Mm. Uh, so one of my professors, uh, actually one of my supervisors, Laura Cameron, she made us do a, um, a sound walk as part of one of our courses. Mm-hmm. And uh, you had to kind of walk through your environments and create a sound. And I did it through my university campus. And it really is incredible how when you put on a different lens or a different orientation on a walk how that walk changes and I found myself writing about that hum of machines it was a hum that was kind of silent to me invisible to me and then I went on this walk and it was everywhere I could hear just machines going and and it was amazing to me that I'd been on this campus constantly walked around and just not really tuned into that mm. and then made a concerted effort to walk and listen and that was the sound that permeated everything yeah i think that it's a deceptively deceptively simple method but a really productive method in terms of for all the reasons that you've just um you've mentioned it's really a, a fantastic way of desensitizing yourself to uh, ordinary landscapes or or spaces that you habitually walk through um so yes i've i've run these listening walks and i've probably run them in a similar way that that um that laura ran yours um so essentially what i do is uh with the with a group of of interested folk um i would lead them through um tends to be urban spaces because of where i'm located um walking through urban space and and getting people to try just to focus on on their experience of sound on their listening and when I talk about listening, I'm not just talking about what comes through your ears, okay, in terms of what we can sense through the cochlea within our ears. Um, it's also about um, a more embodied sense of walking. Okay, so things like vibrations, um, low frequency sound, things like that, we can certainly sense through our whole bodies. And so I feel that it's a really nice embodied way of moving through space and as you rightfully say things like hums and and things that you habitually block out for good reason because listening intently and intensely is tiring it can be really exhausting when you do it for prolonged periods of time so it makes sense that we habitually kind of um, don't attend to those sounds but when you do you realize just how diverse sounds are even in spaces that you might think of as being quiet or or tranquil or or peaceful so i think that this is a method um is perhaps one of the if not the key methods i think for sonic methods um because it's such a fantastic way of not having to focus on technology on recording equipment i think it's really democratic i think they're really easy to run and i think that they are 
um, really ear opening in a way that people that beforehand, I think, are often quite skeptical about what they can get out mm. of these walks. But when you go on them, you just realize uh, just how much stuff you're ordinarily missing and um, and how lively um, certain spaces are that you might have thought are, are just dominated by road traffic or just dominated by um, you know, obvious things around the city and that there's far more detail and texture to our everyday sound environments that, than we might ordinarily imagine. Yeah, I think you're completely right. Uh, as, as part of the same course, you know, I tried to do a walk on the same block, kind of following uh, Alexander Horowitz on looking. And um, I, I did the same walk on the same block kind of as often as possible and was journaling about it. And I realized it was a suburban block. And I have to say, in general, it, it was a fairly mundane block in many ways, except when it came to sound, there was one particular corner. There was one tree where clearly the birds just loved this tree. And then there was another kind of swampy area where, depending on the time of day you were walking, the way in which that area sounded was completely different. So I think this method here is potentially really quite revolutionary for animal studies scholars as a way in which to understand and access animals because a really big concern is how do we kind of consider and look at animals as subjects so not just as mm -hmm. beings that the world impacts but as beings that shape the world and that are shaping the world constantly and whose lives deserve to be considered in a meaningful mm -hmm. substantive way and I think that trying to instead of just sit and watch as a, like an impassioned observer, uh, sound, like you said, you feel the vibrations. What would it mean to be, you know, in, in a national park and to kind of feel the vibrations of the elephant herd walking by? Uh, what would it mean to to hear, um, you know, the, the, how do you say them? The kitty wakes? Kitty wakes? The kitty wakes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, waking you up in the morning. What, what do these sounds say about Absolutely. the social relationships between us and these animals and between these animals and other animals? I think yeah. when yeah, when you start to broaden your senses a little bit, this is, becomes a really exciting uh, avenue for and, and tool um, – toolkit of methods is that how mm -hmm. it's said yeah for, yeah for animal studies scholars absolutely i mean when you attend to sound you realize just the extent to which animals are world making mm. um, not just their own worlds but our own worlds creating particular kinds of atmospheres creating particular kinds of of sensory experiences um and yeah you're right so when you attend to that you 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 realize that um something like a kitty wake might be small in stature but um but it can create and 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 completely um, kind of transform a place through through their through their calls. Mm, yeah, like they give it a sense of a sense of place, and and obviously not just like we said earlier, not just for us. The, those calls matter. They're not Absolutely. they're not um, inconsequential. Something is going on there, uh, and the fact that they're calling so much, or the fact that the ants are rubbing their antennas, something is happening there. This is not mm -hmm. a uh it's not a it's not a pointless sound there's there's a reason there's something happening behind these sounds and to kind of i don't know to just say oh it's irritating or it's annoying mm -hmm. seems to me to be foreclosing what the the potential meanings of those sounds are yeah yes absolutely and and meanings which go beyond uh purely uh human enjoyment or 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 um frustration with these sounds so to return to the the idea um the the example of of the kitty wakes what's happening here is that i'm recording them during the breeding season mm -hmm. um so there's a huge amount of vocalizations between um between 
between the paired, you know, the parents of of the kitty wakes of the kitty wake ch- chicks. So so this is recorded outside um, uh, uh, Dunbar um, near Dunbar. Uh, harbour and it's no old really old stone wall and there's a series of um, nests that have been created in this stone wall so these are really important vocalizations in terms of communication tools um, and, and and as you rightly say socialization so it's not just uh it's not just a matter for for humans to attend to these sounds it's a matter also for importance for things like the culture of animals and the conservation of animals as well yeah, I think when when you start to realize that they are communicating and that these might be distinctive languages, things change. And and also, you know, we were speaking earlier about how their sound might be construed as uh, irritating or annoying to particular humans. But something you mentioned in your paper uh, was you speak a bit about kind of reconstruction and what reconstruction does. And I think that some animals and some animal sounds kind of get reconstructed constantly, perhaps to assume an, an irritating tone, if that makes sure. sense. You know, I think, I think back to, um, was it Finding Nemo? Mine, 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 mine. Like, like, and I loved, I loved them, but they kind of became caricatures of an annoying bird, right? Absolutely. Like birds that make too much noises. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just starts, or, or the roar of a lion, you start, it's something that you should revere and something that should Absolutely. be really, and I mean, incredible sound, I would argue, but is that because of how it's been represented and what it means to my culture. I, Definitely. Anyway, um, yeah. this is really fascinating. Um, but I wanted to just come back to that, actually. So in, your, um, mm-hmm. in the paper, you said you spoke of methods as filters. So we've spoken about a couple of methods here, um, recording, sound walks, sound mapping, um, you know, different types of tools, whether it's uh, the parabolic reflector, uh, different types of microphones. So all Mm -hmm. of these could really help animal study scholars to access and understand and imagine perhaps different kinds of animal worlds and experiences. But one thing you spoke of uh, was methods as filters, and you brought up three things, kind of the the tension between capture and representation, Mm -hmm. um, as well as the idea of sound as performance. I wonder if we could just speak a little bit about those and what what those filters are and what they mean. Mm, Okay, I'm going to have to rack my brains a little bit uh, about this paper. (laughs) It was was quite a few years ago. But yeah, so um, so myself and my colleague, um, Michael Gallagher, um, who is now based at Manchester Metropolitan University. Um, we wrote this paper as kind of a way of thinking through uh, what audio recording or specifically field recording, and, and when we talk about field recording, what we mean is essentially all kinds of audio recording outside of a controlled studio environment. What this might mean for geographical research and the ways in which we might conceptualise these different tools and what we're trying to disentangle here is or trying to perhaps um uh kind of prevent people going down a route of presuming that and and i I kind of touched upon this when we really first kicked off this conversation is this idea of audio recordings as being a pure representation of as of an objective external world okay as with photography and film, we need to not go down that route and think about the ways in which uh, particular kinds of technology and particular forms of editing and particular ways in which we play back those subsequent recordings 
that kind of chain, that assemblage of decisions which are made by the recordist in kind of concert with the technology that is being used um, is not a pure representation of an external reality. It's always filtered through different kinds of ways of listening and experiencing the world. So, yeah, we wanted to urge caution uh, um, about thinking about audio recording as a way of, of capturing an unfiltered external reality. Yeah, the, 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 the tension between, I think, representation and um, capturing, I think, is mm-hmm. really significant. And it's come up a, a couple of times as, as we've been speaking, kind of the framing of the photograph versus the framing of the sound recording mm-hmm. and to be attentive to uh, what you're trying to show. Um, you know, it's not an untouched nature or uh, – and then I think, you know, nature documentaries have kind of faced criticism for this themselves as kind of showcasing this untouched, beautiful nature and giving the illusion of just biodiversity going Absolutely. wild where, when, in fact, maybe they're not doing enough to show – uh, some of the devastation. Uh, but one of the things you mentioned there was also kind of about the performance of sound and and mm. how we could, what we could do to, I suppose how we could use sound to better relay information as well. So through like sound installations or sound mm-hmm. art. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think that this is potentially a really fruitful space for, for folks with animal studies uh, or mm-hmm. folks with interest in extinction studies or even rewilding. What, what does it mean you know, performative sound. What, what, what do you mean when you're starting to talk uh, about that? I, I suppose to mm-hmm. some extent recording itself is performative. But, it it uh, absolutely is. Um, we were also thinking about forms of dissemination. Um, we mm-hmm. were thinking about how do we, if we're capturing all this, um, this material, this data, whatever you want to call it, what are the means by which we then relay that to different kinds of audiences? And so um, performance is the... Is the is the replaying of these audio recordings. And when we replay them in different spaces, they're going to act in different spaces. They're going to inhabit one room very differently to another one. Auditioning over microphone, uh, sorry, over headphones is going to sound very different to speakers. And so, mm-hmm. again, it's being attentive to um, the ways in which replay um, impact what can be heard or not heard from those recordings. Um, so, yeah, also thinking about... Um, from kind of a more narrow academic perspective, what are the means by which we can distribute or discuss audio recordings? When we were writing this paper, um, it was very challenging um, to actually get audio recordings embedded within the paper itself. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's very easy to send an editor a, um, a few photographs or or static visual maps or things like that but working with multimedia data um, was then a real challenge for academic presses Um, so that's why we were then also thinking about what are the sorts of mechanisms that could run in parallel to you know traditional written um, academic texts Um, things have improved certainly since then but it still is quite a challenge um, to get um, audio recordings um, into academic texts. And very yeah. often, um, and this is something which um, quite a lot of people in broadly in sound studies, I think, have really struggled with, is how do we ensure that that if we are dealing with sound recordings within our work, how do we ensure that sound recordings don't just remain as kind of referential points within the text, which is the main important thing, 
right? You read a text, you read an article, and then you refer to the recording or, you know, as an example of what you're talking about. Is there, are, are there mechanisms by which we can maybe not necessarily completely flip that, but maybe equalize that um, inherent imbalance between the power of the text and the power of sound? Do we need to always have um, uh, sound recordings as purely examples of what we're writing about? Does that make sense to you? It does. It makes a, it makes a lot of sense. And I was I was at a um, a workshop this past this past week, and one of the one of the presenters, and it was a bovine scholarship workshop. So everyone was talking about cows, and we were all really excited. And there were a lot of images of cows, but only one presenter played a sound recording of cows, and it, it stuck out in my mind actually because the it was it was. A whole bunch of calls, kind of like what you had with the, the kitty wakes happening earlier. There was a whole bunch of of back and forth and things happening, mm. and I don't think we're used to hearing cows in that way. And I found it really subversive, actually, to have to have the kind of presentation stop and to hear the animals for a moment to to kind of contend with the fact that they they speak in the world and they do things, uh, and and something is happening. Like we were speaking earlier, something is is happening here, mm-hmm. and. And then I think, okay, wow, this opens up a whole bunch of interesting ways of dissemination. So uh, I'm interested in how cows were removed from cities. And uh, in the small city that I'm researching, uh, Kingston, there were about the same number of cows as there were horses, but they're not anywhere near, like in terms of the urban imaginary, they're not really in people's urban imaginary. But then I think, wow, imagine if I could get a whole bunch of speakers in the downtown core and play what 300 cows sound like, Uh, you know, that I, I can't necessarily emulate the smell that might be breaking some bylaws or um but to to try and just compel that imagination to say what does it mean to remove because mm-hmm. 300 seems kind of inconsequential when we think of of numbers the uh, and numbers, especially yeah. the numbers of animals today but 300 beings in a downtown core that would be a cacophony Right, it, it would. I mean, cacophony mm. has bad, bad connotations. Maybe it would sure, just be what sure. it sounded like. Sure, I think like. it it would be it would be energetic and it would be lively. Yes. And 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 you touch on a really good point about I, I guess the historical conceptualization of of sound. Okay, mm. so there's an assumption um, that the current urbanism that we inhabit is noisy. To use that word, cacophonous is a degraded environment. Um, and that somehow uh, historical town and urban sounds were at a quieter volume because mm-hmm. there wasn't road traffic. No, if you look at historical writings of urbanization, of early forms of urbanization, they were they were loud, and and and, and partly because of the presence of of animals. You know, the mm-hmm. sound of of horse and carts along cobbled streets is not quiet. The sound of three hundred cows in a downtown core is Mm. not going to be a a quiet environment so yeah taking that kind of historical approach I think also um, gets us over this assumption that that um, that that loudness and the or the presence of vitality um, is is somehow a contemporary uh, Mm. form of urban urban living and urbanization of course the sounds are very different but exactly yeah but but nonetheless, there, there's still there's still vitality there. That this is not just um, quiet, peaceful, historical, urban spaces. But I think it talks to some of the the valuations you were talking of earlier, right? So there there was a clear kind of when you put on a historical lens in in 
you know, the 19th century, there was a kind of a clear shift in how sound was valued in, in the urban space, right? The sound of a car, I would argue, is is very loud and invasive and it's too much. But at that time, at that moment, it was an exciting sound. It was a sound that represented a lot more than just a kind of a noise in our in our environments. It was the sound of progress. It was the sound of 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 everything a horse at that time was not. Um, you know, it was the sound of change, which I think speaks to some of what you were saying earlier about a listening walk. If you were walking down a street at that time and you heard the clickety-clack of the horse's hooves and you heard the sound of a motor car, you were hearing class differences. You were hearing you were hearing the future and the past at the same time and you you created valuations on those sounds. So for the longest time, the sound of a horse and the sound of a cow was just the way it sounded. There was no mm-hmm. problem. It was just mm-hmm. what it was. But then at some point it became problematic. Uh, and I think well, like, what an exciting way to try and like, think through these uh, processes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, I guess that that might dovetail quite nicely with um, some of the uh, work which I'm doing at the moment in mm-hmm. in relation to to um, soundscape and, and soundscape change. Um, I don't know if you talked about the World Soundscape Project in in your previous um, podcast. If you've even heard of of this group. If if I have and we did, then I'm not recalling it very well, right? No now. problem, no problem. <laughs> so, so the so the World Soundscape Project are um, are a, a, a really important kind of piece of the jigsaw puzzle um, when we're talking about sonic methods in terms of social science academic research. They were the principal instigators of this suite of methods that I refer to as sonic methods. So the World Soundscape Project were were based. Um, uh, uh, at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. Um, and they were initiated by uh, somebody by the name of R. Murray Schaefer. Now, R. Murray Schaefer, I'm sure you've heard of. Um, he was instrumental in in what we now term soundscape studies, or, a, or it's also called acoustic ecology. Um, so R. Murray Schaefer set up what, what was termed rather grandiosely the World Soundscape Project um, in the late 1960s, and it really started getting going in the early 1970s. Um, they instigated a number of these methods that we've discussed. So they, they uh, really came up with this idea of, of listening walks or sound walks. Um, they discussed different forms of really quite interesting forms of, uh, of sound mapping before we had the technology to kind of acoustically represent places. Um, and they were also instrumental in um, social sciences using audio recording as a method of documenting soundscapes and also soundscape change. Now, the World Soundscape Project, and particularly R. Murray Schaefer, is very much associated with noise and noise pollution because R. Murray Schaefer, a lot of his writings are kind of rallying against um, uh, uh, noise in downtown cores of of places like Vancouver. Um, but I think that there's a, a, a broader story about the World Soundscape Project. And so currently I'm doing some research, um, quite slow progress, but it is gradually uh, taking shape. And I'm, I'm looking at the, um, one of the first projects that the World Soundscape Project conducted in the early 1970s, where they created this really wonderful um, audio archive of Vancouver in the early 1970s. So there was a there was a few 
guys and and it very much was male dominated this group um a, a few guys went out and and did audio recordings um across vancouver for a number of months um and all of this all of these recordings um capture all kinds of fascinating unique mundane boring exciting moments of vancouver at that particular time um and what i what i'm doing is i'm investigating the making of this sound archive so i was fortunate a few years ago to to go to simon fraser university and spend some time in the archive um it's it's now been digitized so it's actually accessible online um but this archive really kind of i really find it fascinating as kind of a document that sort of permeates but also at some moments goes off in very different tangents to this very dogmatic focus on noise and noise pollution that people associate with the World Soundscape Project. There's a lot of celebration of noise. There's a lot of celebration of the vitality of contemporary urbanism or what was contemporary urbanism in the early 1970s. Um, there's a fascination with with really loud sounds. The loudest sound in the whole archive they absolutely love, and that's the sound of foghorns um, playing out um, over Barard Inlet. Um, so uh, part of part of what I'm trying to do is trying to explore how um the recordists conceptualized uh the soundscape of vancouver at that time cut some of the kinds of projections and forward kind of ideas of what they thought it might develop into um and also trying to think about um the kinds of technologies and the kinds of archival practices that were used at this time as a way of trying to make claims about urban living about soundscape about soundscape policy and all these sorts of things so so that's what i'm working on at the moment and to to go back to this idea of soundscape change across time something that i did is i spent um uh, about a week and a half I, I didn't have as much time as i'd have liked to but um you know funding's tight and i had teaching to to complete and things like this so i had to come back to cardiff but um i spent some i spent a, a good amount of time out in the field trying to re-record some of the same locations that were recorded in the 19 early 1970s cool. as a way of trying to understand how soundscapes have changed with all of the caveats that i'm not recording in the same season i might be mm. recording at slightly different times but kind of trying to get a general impression of of how these soundscapes might have changed over time and what was really fascinating is that in some of the projections that were created by the world soundscape project particularly the writings of R. Murray schaefer there was this assumption that urbanism and, and cities are going to just become louder and louder, more cacophonous, and they're going to be harder places for us to live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really, there was quite some judgmental things about the downtown core of, 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 of Vancouver in the early 1970s and what it might become. What I found really interesting is um, processes of deindustrialization and also gentrification, including gene, green gentrification, actually meant that some of the downtown core locations that were recorded in, in Vancouver have rapidly transformed into quiet, relatively quiet um, spaces that the World Soundscape Project perhaps never had 
never would have been able to conceive of as being the future reality of Vancouver. And it really upsets this assumption there is kind of this linear progression from quiet to noise. Actually, there Mm. is quite, quite considerable fluctuations. Um, so there was things like they recorded a, a downtown cooperage um, that made barrels for salted fish and all these sorts of things. A really loud space. You know, there's the sound of hammering of the making of the barrels. There's the sound of buzz saws as as logs, as, as wood that has been um, brought in on the railroad system from mm-hmm. the hinterland of Vancouver out into, you know, out in BC is brought into downtown core to produce these barrels. All of that is gone. All of that industry is gone. It's been replaced by expensive condos, um, by little green space pocket parks. And it's now full of the sound of people cycling around, of kids playing in small parks, of kind of leisure spaces. So what I think for me was interesting here was how gentrification and processes of deindustrialization um, shape soundscapes um, in quite considerable ways and in ways as I say that perhaps were not um, could not even enter the imagination of these early recordists in downtown Vancouver. Yeah it's fascinating I think kind of the idea because I, I do think cities are perhaps relatively loud places or spaces um, but they're certainly not the only loud places and spaces. Uh, you go to a feedlot, that's going to be a really loud uh, space, uh, but it's something that we're not exposed to. And I think that a lot of these um, kind of offensive urban noises were pushed. There were bylaws that pushed them out and and that invisibilized some of the work that uh, goes into sustaining cities, some of the, you know, the, the, industries that that make cities function they've mm-hmm. been kind of increasingly invisibilized i think in these urban spaces and some of that invisibilization is also i guess um a sound well, i don't know what the i guess i guess it's si- muted silencing. them there muted we go i was like what's, yeah, what's, yeah, yeah. what's invisible in sound <laughs> <laughs> I was like, um, um but yeah and, and also to just i guess disrupt the idea that a city is this or it's that right different mm-hmm. parts of cities have different soundscapes and different um things happening in them again to I think your concept of value here is really important like who gets to create the sounds that they want what what kind of what can these different sounds tell us about different parts of the city and different parts of the country and different parts of the world Uh, it's really Mm -hmm. fascinating and I love that you brought in the archives there because I mean I don't know if that would constitute another sonic method necessarily Mm. um but I think a lot of the methods that you spoke of so far have been quite uh, presentist, right? You, you can go out, you can record, you can uh, you, you can go on your sound walks today. But for me, doing historical work, kind mm. of thinking of that, I had never thought of going into the archives and seeing if I could find sound files of the city I'm interested in or, or movie files and what this Absolutely. might be able to tell me uh, mm-hmm. of, of the urban at that time. So that's really uh it really is, like you said at the beginning, a, a fascinating new way to just kind of crack open thinking about animals and thinking about our world. And uh, so so thank you so much. Mm. This has been really, really helpful. Uh, perhaps now, if you can believe it, we've been speaking for an hour. Um, okay. And I think I could speak to you for like four more. But uh, I know that you, you're lecturing and, you know, things to do, things to do. Uh, could you perhaps tell us your, your quote? Yes, absolutely. So my quote, um, I think, nicely dovetails with um, 
with what we were, we were early discussing a little bit about ethics and the kind of maybe the ethical dilemmas of, of, of sound recording, particularly in terms of, you know, the insertion of microphones and how that might disrupt um, animal spaces. Now, this um, excerpt, which I'm going to read, is from a lovely um, uh, a book called In the Field, The Art of Field Recording, um, which is edited um, by um, uh, Kathy Lane and Angus Carlyle. Um, and this book is a compilation of um, interviews with a range of field recordists talking about their practice, talking about why it is, why they do what they do, uh, and and some of the things that we've touched upon in terms of why these methods might be interesting or important or vital, not just for academic research, but also um, for the arts as well, and also sciences, so not just social sciences. Now, this excerpt uh, comes from an interview with a Norwegian sound artist by the name of Jana Winderen, a really wonderful um, sound recorder, sound artist. In fact, she is probably my favorite um, sound recordist, um, contemporary um, field recordist. She, she, in particular, she focuses on um, aquatic recordings. Um, so she uses, I, I spoke about contact microphones. If you waterproof a contact microphone, essentially what you get is something called a hydrophone. So a hydrophone is a waterproofed microphone that enables you to listen uh, in in watery worlds, and so Jana has um, produced a series of wonderful um, recordings, and she rec- releases them as CDs, LPs, and what have you um, of these kind of watery worlds. Now, a question is posed to her about how how she feels about her own presence in recordings. And this is something we haven't touched upon yet. So I thought this might be quite an interesting quote. So Yanis says the following. I don't want to be there in the recording as it is played back. I don't want my voice to be there, my breathing to be there, or my footsteps to be there. Because in each case, it would become about me, to, uh, me, about me listening to something. I don't want people to identify with me in my recordings, or for that matter, with any other people. Yet obviously I'm there, listening with my fullest concentration, often in a very solitary fashion. When you achieve that level of focus, it becomes like it sometimes can be with photography. You are concentrating so much that you just know you have a good photograph or a good composition. But it is totally not about me, and it is about the content, and that is why I really do not want to send around portraits of myself. Wow, that's so fascinating. Um, because you can actually, in that quote, see her. You can see mm-hmm. her standing at attention, standing stiff with listening. Um, Absolutely, and, and normally in a in a um, in a um, fishing boat, fishing vessel, maybe out in the north North Sea or somewhere. And so, for me, I think this um, presents a really interesting dilemma that a lot of recordists deal with, and that is this role of the presence of the recordist mm. ourselves. Invariably, recordists will edit out any of their presence that might kind of incur within the recording itself. And and this is an ethical dilemma. I think it's troubling for a number of reasons. Um, I also understand why someone doesn't want their presence to be within that context. But what is happening here is is a number of things, including kind of a disassociation between you and the environment. Mm-hmm. It's also trying, it also, in this, in this kind of a strange way, it creates a sort of a passive way of listening to a, uh, to a place if we don't actually 
constantly remind us that we are listening to someone else's listening, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. You know, there mm-hmm. is somebody who's physically there dangling a hydrophone off the side of a boat and then going and doing all the other things in terms of editing and maybe doing a bit of EQing, some filtering and that kind of stuff, which she she tends to be quite light touch with those sorts of things. But yeah, this this question of what is the role or what is the rightful presence of a recordist in recording is is a conundrum which I constantly grapple with myself both in terms of my writing but also in terms of my own recording practice. I suppose it's that kind of reflexivity right even what we were talking about with regards to the documentaries earlier like what do you do when you when you just portray you know the relationships between the cheaters is just happening out there Mm -hmm. and you know without necessarily showing what's involved in getting the sound for those documentaries, what's involved in getting, uh, you know, I had I had no idea Foley artists were a thing until a few years ago, right? That most of the sounds I'm hearing in movies Absolutely. is someone standing in a little room, like Absolutely. figuring out how to make that sound and very often and very often that's the same with nature documentaries you watch a nature documentary and 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 very often what you're listening to is not the sound of those animals it's somebody just fascinating somebody in a in a broom cupboard or a soundproofed um room somewhere recreating what they think these things will sound like and and then again, those ethical questions come mm. up because because you're you're trying to get a sense of oh I now know these animals I, or I know this environment because I heard it and I watched it and if it was on TV and there was Absolutely. that image then it's real absolutely um, and this raises I have no idea which documentary it was so I'm going to get it all completely wrong and <laughs> or even which species it was so this is just a terrible story but it was something to do with a, a uh, you know, a documentary where these birds were just pushed off the side of a cliff in order to make a dramatic story about, you know, these birds plunging to their death. Oh, are you thinking? Are you thinking about lemmings? Yes. Yeah. So, so the history of lemmings. Yeah. So the history of lemmings. Everyone, everyone thinks. You know, we have this metaphor of of lemmings falling off cliffs. Exactly. Le- lemmings, this is it. lemmings don't do that. They don't do that in in the in the natural world. Yeah, they were pushed off cliffs. And this um, was and. That's a really extreme example, it I is think. A really but it, it example, speaks yeah. it speaks to some of the, the interventions. What goes into making mm-hmm. something? And I think it was BBC Earth recently, um, or Planet Earth, or where they've started now at the end of each episode actually showing yes. people going into the Arctic or people going into these spaces and showing like this is what's involved in it's two or three years worth of work. It's not just Absolutely. something that exists. And I think mm-hmm. um yeah, and also showing some of the problematics with with that. And, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So yeah, so in ter- in terms of foley, um, there are good reasons why foley is used in in nature documentaries. You know, if you've got a, a an image of a of a spider walk, you know, running across. Um, a forest floor, um, invariably those sounds are going to be too small for you to be able to pick up Mm -hmm. um, in a distinct enough fashion that it is going to make a strong enough impression on a a viewer that that is the sound of of that spider. If you don't have any sound, then weirdly your brain thinks this doesn't seem quite right. Why can I not hear the movement of this animal? So so Foley is used there as a way of augmenting reality, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now, there are there is a number of, of really great um, wildlife recorders that do fantastic jobs. And and, and Chris Watson is, is somebody who I, I really look up to. He's a, an incredible um, wildlife recordist and, and he's worked on a lot of David Attenborough's nature documentaries. Um, but but even still, yeah, there are times when when foley um, is quite heavily lent upon within 
nature documentaries in ways that I think are are um are not made clear to a viewer or a listener mm. to that nature documentary. I think it's quite challenging to fake images um in nature documentaries unless you're physically pushing lemmings over yeah. over I mean but uh, even even that's cleft. becoming what is it called the like deep web now where you can like just have oh, someone else yeah. someone else's face yes. in your face saying of something course, like yeah. the world is the world mm-hmm. is getting really weird of course um, but, but, but yeah but with sound brain. but with sound i i think that um yeah there are there are real challenges for for wildlife recorders and that is why foley is used because as i say there's mm-hmm. this expectation that if you can see an animal on screen then you should be able to hear it as well and and i mean there are i don't think that there's necessarily anything inherently wrong with using foley artists right same thing as perhaps including live animals in films should be problematized there are definitely ethical questions absolutely you know with with actively tripping horses because you want a dramatic scene where if you've got cgi now and you don't need to have any horses but you can recreate them why not do that as a less invasive method so if Mm -hmm. you've got someone who's able to create the sound um in a way that's for the real animals better for them you know why not go that route uh but at the same time when we're speaking, I guess, in research ways uh, and in ways in which we speak about sound and the significance of sound, what you're speaking of here is, uh, goes back to what we were talking about earlier, right? This this tension of having real sound or objective Mm -hmm. sound uh, and why there is so much significance and weight on that. And what could Foley art present as a potential sonic method for for us as animal studies scholars right what what could we do in terms of using our imagination for how we could empathize with other animals how we could mm. empathize with other worlds by creating their sounds um what would it mean for me to start rubbing my arms against my body to see what it felt like in terms of emulating the the life of an ant or maybe being just now it's <laughs> too late in the day <laughs> um yeah it's interesting it, it's um, really funny interesting yeah I have one one of your sound recordings I really just want to play mm. for the listeners because I thought it was just fascinating and then I promise I'll let you go. Of course. Um, the one of the bats, I'm going to play okay. it and if you could tell me what's going on because it just, I had no idea what, what was going on in the sound. So, I love that sound. So I think I think it's Dorbiton's bat, I think I labelled it. Uh, yes. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, so this is recorded um, along the River Taff, which is uh, a river system that, that flows um, through central Cardiff. So this is in a heavily urbanised area. Um, these bats fly low across water bodies, and what you're hearing is them echolocating. So they navigate space and find prey by sending out um these these uh high pitched sound signals um that are inaudible to the human ear so what i'm using here is i'm using something called a bat detector which can pick up these very high frequency sounds and transpose them into sounds that we can hear so again there is a kind of there's a level of artifice to a certain extent because that isn't the sound 
person when there when that transposition happens it is changing the nature of those sounds but it's necessary for us to be able to hear them so what we're hearing is is this bat essentially hunting for its prey i don't know if you could pick up a few there's a few little zip sounds it kind of upticks and that is it catching um its prey so it's the sound it's the sound of where it's locked in on its prey and it's catching um it's probably a moth um that it will be feeding on because it feeds um uh, um, and nocturnally, um, so it was at night. So I can't see the bat flying around the water. Um, but using, but using this, um, using this bat detector is absolutely amazing. It's it's a really incredible tool, and it also allows you to. Um, it's really important for for ecologists to be able to distinguish between different bat species because mm. different bat species produce slightly different tones um, or different rhythms of of this echolocation process, and they also echolocate at slightly different frequencies. So you're essentially what you're doing is with your echo with your bat detectors, you're dialing into different frequencies, and when you hit upon a particular bat species or a particular the frequency sorry you know what you know with good certainty what species that is it's like bat radio tuning into, absolutely absolutely tuning into this bat, yeah, tuning into that's that what I, bat that's what i do this is what i do during the summer months i, I walk around at dusk and, and listen to different bat species and I, so again it's cool. again it's something which um going back to this question of, of world making and, and getting access to worlds that are uh, you know in very mundane places around the city that I live in and being able to access these with a relatively simple piece of technology uh, creates endless fascination for me. Um, uh, where because you sent me a whole bunch of sound clips mm. i'm sure that listeners would love to access them if people are interested in your work learning more about mm. kind of the work you're doing with the soundscapes but also in terms of hearing you know more of these kinds of um, animal clips where sure. could they where could they find them yeah, so I I um I put all of my sound recordings up on um, the Internet Archive, which is mm-hmm. um, a wonderful archiving resource, and I put all of my recordings up there um, uh, under um, Creative Commons licenses, so anyone can download them and use them for their own work, their own research, their own artistic projects if they so desire. Um, my username um is 12 gates to the city that's numerical one two gates to the city and my own um personal website where i document all of my audio recording projects is 12 gates to the city.com so okay, if you head okay. there um you'll be able to hear a lot of these recordings wonderful i'll make sure that there's a link to to both of those uh, there and um yeah i think anyone with an interest in animal studies should be looking at nope listening to more animals <laughs> and uh and thank you so much for just giving us you know a bit of a an ear into your world and um for helping us to to hear animals better so thank you so much for joining us today my absolute pleasure thank you very much for having me Okay, and uh, that was Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan, so much for a fascinating episode. And uh, now we're going to turn to uh, this episode's animal highlights. So welcome back to the show, Hannah. Hello, thanks for having me back. Uh, so what are, we, what are we talking about this time? We're going to be talking about bark beetles. Bark beetles. Bark, bark beetles. And I'm guessing bark beetles are somehow related to trees, or they bark like dogs. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that would 
be a pretty cool animal highlight. There are these beetles that bark like dogs. <laughs> no. Because this, is this an onomatopoeia? Are you really leading into the sound theme? Like, yeah, that would be pretty cool. <laughs> Unfortunately, not. They are beetles <laughs> that you may find in bark. On okay. A all right so i'm gonna um, hand it over to you to uh, teach us about bark beetles okay so one of the things that you and jonathan talked about today um was about insect sound recordings so jonathan played those amazing ant sounds and so i would be remiss if i did not use this time to talk about david dunn's famous recording series the sound of light in trees um, so these are anyone who knows who who is interested in, in animals and sound have probably heard about these. Um, so in these recordings, he used innovative recording techniques to sonically capture the interior of a pinion tree. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, which had been taken over by bark beetles after periods of drought in New Mexico. So we don't often think about the sounds that small insects might make, not the least what the soundscape of, a, of the inside of a tree might sound like. Um, so indeed, in most cases, without recording devices, we would likely never know what these species or places sound like. So they're not audible to the human ear. You wouldn't be able to pick them up with a conventional microphone. Um, so these recordings are uh, kind of an example of how acoustic methods or sonic methods um, can give us access to animals' life worlds um, that are radically different from our own. So with these recordings, Dunn's intention was to, quote, convince the listener of the surprising complexity of sound that occurs within one species of tree as emblematic of the interior sound worlds of trees in general. It also intended to demonstrate the rich acoustical behavior of a single species of small insect and to suggest how sound is a much more important aspect of how it, the insect, organizes the world and interacts with its surrounding ecosystem than previously suspected. So these recordings were taken to trace a major outbreak of a Mexican invader species of bark beetle um, that can kill trees that have been made vulnerable to infestation um, through drought and climate shifts. So the recordings, I'll talk a bit about how the recordings were made because it's fascinating, but they were made with a custom built vibration transducer, which was inserted between the outer bark of a tree and the interior um, of a tree. Um, and so I'm no sound recording expert, but I believe that sound trans, that vibration transducers are um, pretty similar kind of bigger versions of the contact microphones that Jonathan talked about in this interview. Um, so they pick up sound vibration, sound as vibrations on solid surfaces. If you tried to use a conventional microphone to record these sounds, you would likely pick up very little. The kinds of sounds that are made by bark beetles are unfortunately not barks, <laughs> um, but are better described as chirpy, like chirps. Uh, chirpy chirps, uh, which are made through an organ which is called a pars striden that functions as a friction-based grating surface. Um, so that's how the noise are made. Um, and you should definitely check the sounds out on David Dunn's website. He has a bunch of examples of it and they're pretty crazy. Um, so Dunn says that over the course of a tree's infestation, the interior of the soundscape of the tree, the interior soundscape of the tree changes. So in a sense, the recording may be very useful to measure the health of a tree. But perhaps more interesting 
is that Dunn has this hypothesis about whether the conditions that make a tree vulnerable to infestation in the first place, so those drought and climate conditions that I talked about earlier, um, whether the beetles might actually be able to hear those, those vulnerabilities. And that might be how they know which trees to attack and which, are, which would be available for infestation. So I'm going to quote him here to make sure I get this right. Um, but he says that as the tree's vascular system becomes stressed from insufficient fluid transport, discontinuity, discontinuities in the integrity of its vascular conduits cause small partial vacuum bubbles to form. These can implode with such tremendous instantaneous force that under laboratory conditions, they have been measured to produce temperatures up to 5,000 degrees centigrade. When these cavitation events occur, they release both light and ultrasound signals. Under extreme conditions, some trees produce these events at an almost continuous ultrasound signature, end quote. So the hypothesis being that the beetles are able to hear that ultrasonic signature, which leads them towards the trees that they're able to infest. That's, you know, pretty cool. <laughs> um, so here, what I kind of wanted to highlight is that we have a kind of twofold and multi-species account of sonic methods. So first, um, we have how the beetles may use sonic methods to locate species of tree that they can invade. But the second sonic method being how human sound recording recordists can use innovative recording techniques to make these sounds audible to humans. Mm. So regarding the latter, um, I think that being able to hear these creatures um, might help us to evoke more empathy towards them, reminding us that despite their kind of invader and antagonistic status, um, they're also just beings trying to find their way. Um, That's... <laughs> That's so fascinating. I mean, like I know in the, the previous highlight, you had also mentioned kind of uh, nightingales uh, being their sounds being like legal, um, mm -hmm. but because people like the sound of their songs, they're kind of let alone. Whereas here you've got an animal who we can't necessarily hear, but who's been called invasive because they're kind of infecting um, trees. And yeah, I like that you're kind of pointing us to some of these ideas of how animals kind of get framed in, in these problematic ways. But right. I have to say that when you were saying that, my mind was imploding with, as you were talking about these like mini explosions happening in mm -hmm. trees, the kind of idea that a tree is a soundscape. You know, we spoke in the, the episode one about these soundscapes. I think that's just, that's just fascinating that these beetles are drawn to particular soundscapes potentially and that that's they, sure. and that they produce these soundscapes, right? That's, in, that's mm -hmm. incredible. And I think, one of the things that I love so much about it is it reminds us that there are, you know, when we think of the soundscape, we think about the things that we can hear and that, mm -hmm. you know, we, you know, in the same way as a landscape is, is the stuff that we can see, but, you know, we know that in a landscape, there's all kinds of natures that we can't see that are, you know, underground or too small for us to see or whatever. And, and it's kind of similar in, in a, in a soundscape, there are all of these sounds that we're not able to, to hear and all of these kind of sonic worlds almost that are, that are there that, um, that we're not able to hear unless we kind of use these sonic methods in order to hear them. And but do you so so are bark beetles considered invasive because they damage trees, 
Yeah, I think they're considered a really big problem in some parts of the US. Um, so these recordings particularly were taken in New Mexico. Um, but yeah, because of these these drought conditions that create these conditions, I don't pretend to understand it too much, <laughs> but where the beetles kind of, and then they, they, they burrow into the tree and kill the tree. Um, okay. So there's kind of, if I have time, there's another sonic layer to this, um, which is that David Dunn, who was the guy who made these recordings originally, is now kind of using those recordings against the Beatles um, oh, yeah. with these kind of sonic warfare. <laughs> I'm making it sound really negative, but obviously the intention is to save the tree. So it's a good thing, I guess. Um, but these devices, the actors, they play the the Beatles' recorded sounds kind of back to them. Um, mm -hmm. But in they have, what is it, kind of randomly generated electronic sounds underneath um, those Beatles sounds um, with the intention to confuse the Beatles so they are not able to communicate with each other um, and things like that and so that they won't be able to take over the, the trees. Yeah, um, this raises a whole bunch of, I think, interesting questions about ethics and the ethics of using you know, sonic methods, uh, some of which Jonathan and, I, Jonathan and I did speak about in the, the episode. Um, and, and I guess also how we start to frame kind of invasive species and which yeah. species we like, because there is a hierarchy happening here between the tree and the beetle um, and and who belongs where. So really right. fascinating um, to kind of think through. Uh, I'm maybe going to throw some other interesting facts in here about beetles. <laughs> they are three sixteenths inches long that's that's small that's pretty small so <laughs> that's tiny um they are approximately the size of a pinhead they are oval and pearly white I'm, I'm busy looking at um actually some pictures of the tree of the wood and i think i've picked up pieces of wood that i, I mean i don't know enough about uh, beetles here but i think i've picked up pieces of wood where certainly a beetle whether it's whether it's this beetle has done because it's really these like intricate kind of twists and turns. It almost looks like an artwork in the in the, the bark itself. Um, but maybe that's that's an engraver beetle, or uh, you know, I need to learn more about beetles. I know. Maybe. I'm reminding us that we don't know very much about insects. Whoa! It says there are over two thousand species of bark beetles. Wow. 2,000 species. And this, again, just kind of shows how we sometimes tend to have, I think, a bit of a mammal bias. You, I mean, gosh, if you start to just think about how much variety there must be. But maybe mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I need to talk to a few more ethologists. I don't know. Well, and maybe maybe sonic methods, you know, can, can help us to kind of make, well, I don't want to use, make the species visible <laughs> through sound. That's so true. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you so much for uh, teaching us a bit more about black beetles. Anytime. <laughs> a huge thank you to Jonathan for being a wonderful guest, to Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics Apple for sponsoring this podcast, to the Sonic Arts Studio and SAP Lab for sponsoring this season, to Hannah Hunter for helping out with the animal highlight, to Jeremy John for the logo and Gordon Clark for the bed music. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hertzenfelder. Hi. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I R O A R P O D.com. Ah.